Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. It's All Songs Considered from NPR Music. I'm Robin Hilton. On this edition of the program, we're talking with Michael Stipe and Mike Mills of the band R.E.M. about the group's landmark album, Automatic for the People. Ready and to bury your father and your mother. What did you think when you lost another? I used to wonder why did you bother? Distance from one, one, two. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Automatic for the People. The band is celebrating the milestone with a deluxe box set that includes a remastered version of the record and a whole lot of extras. Demo tracks, outtakes, live recordings, a book of rare photos, and videos. It's also been mixed in surround sound for Dolby Atmos. In a lot of ways, Automatic for the People was an unlikely hit for R.E.M. The band had just released Out of Time, its most popular album yet, and it was filled with jangly, upbeat pop songs like Shiny Happy People and Me and Honey and Near Wild Heaven. Automatic for the People, on the other hand, was dark. It moved at a much slower pace. It was moody and often heartbreaking, with songs that were both beautiful and sad, like this one, Sweetness Follows. Automatic for the People was an album about mortality and the sanctity of life. And as Michael Stipe explained in our conversation, Automatic for the People was a deeply personal reflection of where he was in his life at the time. I was thinking a lot about death, and my grandparents were at the end of their lives, and I had a sick dog. I know that sounds like nothing, but I I was taking care of a dog that was very, very ill. And I had spent the better part of the last decade wondering whether I I was HIV positive and realizing finally I could get anonymous testing after 1987 and knowing that I was was healthy and that I I had really dodged more than one bullet. So there was death all around and it wasn't a conscious decision to write a song or uh, to to write a, a series of songs or an album's worth of death songs, but that's kind of what it turned into. Of course, it's also more than just death. You know, it's about life and the beauty of life and the and, and the present moment and transition and difficult transitions. But there was a lot of darkness, hopefully with a, with a hopeful edge to it, because I am a hopeful writer. I am an optimist after all, but I do have my darkness. At this point, you guys were already nearly a decade into your career, and, and um, you put out seven albums, including Out of Time, uh, which was a huge success. I'm wondering what you were thinking as you started planning your next record, the one that became automatic for the people? Uh, I felt a great amount of confidence because of the success of Out of Time and having a a song of the summer in Losing My Religion, which was something that I would never have expected R.E.M. to have achieved. And and having that massive, like, unbelievable. So for me, as the singer, as the face, it was a really, really different era and one that I was just kind of getting used to. But, uh, but, But the good part of it was that I had this kind of insane confidence. 
Did you feel a little liberated, like you could kind of do whatever you wanted at that point? I think so. And Peter, you know, Peter just didn't want to be a guitar player. Peter Buck, your your guitarist, yeah. Peter Buck. Um, and uh, we had toured for 10 years. He was tired of it. And he was trying to, I think, very smartly throw uh, hurdles in his own path to try to trip himself up, to work on or try to uh, write on instruments that he had not mastered, that he didn't know very well. And all of us were kind of, you know, basically swapping instruments. We were playing the wrong things. <laughs> That's how this record happened. single that the you ended up having was Drive. Oh, such a weird choice. <laughs> Why do you say that was a weird choice? Well, we knew at this point that we could put up basically anything as a single, and it would get played on the radio, and it would get played on MTV. And we were in a position of great power, being a popular band that they had to play. They had to at least give us a week or two weeks of something. And so we chose these really weird songs as the, as the ones to throw out there. Nobody tells you what to do, baby. Hey, hey, kid, shake the leg. Maybe you're crazy in the head, Maybe I remember thinking when I first heard this as a fan of the band, I remember thinking, how do you get from Shiny Happy People to this? <laughs> Shiny Happy People was, you know, there are five songs. I think it's one, one child's hands worth of songs that were written really for like grammar school kids. <laughs> and I'm not particularly proud of that song. I mean, I think it's a great bubblegum pop song. It's exactly what it is. It's the banana splits. It's the Archies. It's, yeah. it's what I grew up with. That has a place in the canon. Yeah, oh, yeah, but 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 if there was if there was a group of songs that got shot out into outer space to represent our work for the rest of time, I would not count that as one of the ones to be on on that rocket ship. But do you remember what you were thinking with Drive? Because it's it's such a powerful opening shot from the record. It was completely unconscious, but I was paying homage to songs from the 1970s that had an influence on me. Everybody hurts as love hurts, as performed by Nazareth. Drive is Rock On, as performed and written by David Essex. The Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight, clearly The Lion Sleeps Tonight. We had to give them credit for part of that, I think. But David Essex, Rock On, and Elton John's Benny and the Jets were two songs that just blasted right into the core of my being as a 13- and 14-year-old, I think, and presented to me this kind of setup, I think, for what Patti Smith, CBGB, television, 
punk rock scene in New York in 1974 and 75 would offer me. It was an, an entry into a universe that accepted me for who I was. I was already, at that point, I realized that I was very different from all the kids around me. And not just because of my sexuality, but I was not eccentric. I never liked that word, but I was different. I was just different. My father was different. My father was a very funny man and a very odd man. And I, I got it honest. So <laughs> I was realizing this difference. And I think Rock On by David Essex and Benny and the Jets by Elton John kind of provided me with, with this kind of key to a door that would open and never shut again. Let's go back to, uh, we're back after Out of Time and Come Out, and you're now about ready to go into the studio. Uh, what kind of shape were these songs in? What did you have when you when you finally got into the studio with them? Did you have a completely blank canvas? or? I think Peter said that we had three songs that we had kind of worked on going into the, these sessions that were kind of not left over, but they were from the Out of Time sessions, but they were indicating the direction that we were going to move in. That's right. And one of them was Night Swimming. Night Swimming was something, Mike, that you had going into the sessions ready. And I've been thinking about this for days, knowing we were going to talk about this, and I, for the life of me, I cannot remember which piano I wrote I wrote uh, Night Swimming on. It could have been my home in Athens, and it could have been done during the out-of-time sessions, but I just remember that I was playing it somewhere, and you heard it. It was just like me and Honey. You heard it and said, keep playing that. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, it just goes around and around. And you said, well, that's fine. Just go around and around and keep playing it. And you liked it. And yeah. it was sort of a similar similar thing. It just gave you a place to start from. And then, you know, we, you, you came in with this incredible set of melody and lyrics. And I added the intro and the reintros, and it was done. things, they go away. Replaced by every day. Night swimming. Remembering that night. September's coming soon Pining for the moon What if there were two Side by side in orbit Around the fairest sun So much about this song, it really just so perfectly captures the innocence of youth mm. and the freedom that you feel at, in that period in your life. Mm. Yeah, and just the, the vulnerability of being that heady 
intoxicating uh, summer late night, probably drunk or stoned, kind of that beautiful intoxicating sensuality. And looking at it from this very different perspective, kind of looking back at it and saying it's changed. I'm not sure if it's changed or I've changed. It's a beautiful sentiment and it's a beautiful song. It's one of my favorite songs again. I mean, that's, there's so many songs on this record that I really am so proud of. I mean, I remember the places and the feeling of the studio and, and the, the moment more than I remember actually writing. I mean, the, there are writing moments that I recall. I recall writing Man on the Moon because the band were hammering me to get a, to, to, to give them anything. And I wound up giving them something quite, quite spectacular, as it turned out. So you really struggled with, with writing Man on the Moon? I couldn't, I just couldn't write it. I thought the song was complete. I didn't hear a voice on it. I didn't think it needed it. And the band would never listen to me when I was like, it's done, it's done, you don't need me. Just, we'll put it on there like that. They're like, no, 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 you've got to do something. And you've got to do something in every part. I'm like, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, they gave me a week, I think, and I just remember putting on my Walkman and walking around the block in Seattle and just walking around downtown Seattle. And Nirvana had written all these songs, Kurt had written all these songs with yeah in it, the word yeah, and I wanted yeah, to write a song with more yeahs <laughs> than his. Okay. And so I did, I, I, wrote, I counted them. And we had a good laugh about it afterwards, but well, it turned out it was a quite beautiful song. One way we knew that it was lyrically and melodically just the right thing, because Bill and I went in and threw down our backgrounds. I mean, it was just clear what needed to be sung. I mean, I think we just, we went in, we said, it's time for backgrounds. We did them in literally as much time as it takes to sing them, and it was done. And I think that speaks to the absolute perfection of, of the melody you put on it, combining with, with the music that we had. And it was, oh. that's why it was so easy to do. Do you remember what finally shook everything loose? Watching a VHS tape of Andy Kaufman, somehow he became my everyman. He became my hero with a thousand faces. And these kind of larger than life questions, <laughs> literally larger than life questions about existence and about what happens after we're gone or did the man really walk on the moon?
This 25th anniversary edition of Automatic for the People has a lot of demo recordings included in the package. And a lot of the tracks have these funny titles that bear no resemblance to what the songs were ultimately called. Um, and the one that uh, became Man on the Moon uh, is called C to D Slide. One, two, three, four. This was sort of a, a happy accident for you, wasn't it, how this started? That's the story. I don't know that that was actually the case. Bill reaching for a beer and then and then having his hand slide up the guitar, that sounds a little apocryphal to me, but, <laughs> but you know, there was beer involved, so it's very possible. Where, did, where are you, Michael, when, when you're listening to this? Is it, is it taking you? It's like being flayed alive. I mean, it's really processes um, something that I always, you know, I'm a very private person, and so I, I, I feel like... The thing that made that a great song isn't necessarily something that that I think should be public, but I know that there are people that really love listening to that stuff, and and it's fascinating to see people struggle and 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 make wrong moves and then and then stumble upon something right and then take that and turn it into what became one of my favorite songs of our entire like of my of my life really. Forget that that I had anything to do with making it uh, or singing it. It's just a great song. Now, Find the River, I loved. Uh, the, the demo on this for Find the River is, is, for me, I did not remember the melody, the original melody, and how I took it into a place where it's really exactly out of my range. But it's shockingly beautiful. It's, it's almost hard to listen to. It's so beautiful. forgotten about that melody lifting and lifting like that into a falsetto or into a place where my voice couldn't quite go and maybe that's why it didn't make it onto the record but hearing that demo that was the one for me that was the shining moment of, of trying and I really did I really did try to listen to these but it's so painful but that moment is really beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah. I'm surprised it didn't last. We might we might have even said something about it. I'm trying to remember. I, don't, we... I don't remember. I mean, the lyric became, you know, often the narrative and the lyric will kind of guide the melody, and you and you you have to be you have to honor that. That's probably what happened. Mm -hmm. it, it needed to be more plaintive mm -hmm. and less kind of cele sounds, celebratory. That, that sounds right. That sounds yeah. like what you might have said then too. Do you know where you are in the process in this version we're hearing? Like, 
are you improvising the melody with these often? That like was a, that, that sounds like it was, uh, I probably sung that melody into a Walkman, recorded it, and then went in the studio and on a real mic, tried to kind of riff off the melody that I had heard. It's quite possibly Mike wrote part of it. I mean, we would go back and forth with these kind of things, or I would get stuck and say, I really need help with this, I don't know where to go. And one of these guys, Mike, often would provide me with a little bit of an idea for a melody or even a whole melody. So did you ever change the music to fit the lyrics or the melodies you yes. were coming up with? So there was some back and forth. Yeah, Jim. yeah a lot of times what, uh, what we thought of as the chorus, Michael would ask to make it the verse and make the verse the chorus. And, you know, usually we'd acquiesce because, it, it, you know, it made sense. If we liked the song, we wanted it to get finished. And, you know, as Peter said, without Michael, they're instrumentals. So <laughs> there's not, you know, not much point in having 20 instrumentals lying around. So, uh, you know, if we're trying to write great songs. That's what we're trying to do. And so if, if what it takes to make the song great is to switch the chorus and the verse around, it's not a problem. And this is where Bill Berry was. A, he was a great editor. He was he was the rush to the chorus guy. After Bill left the band, we had a harder time finishing the songs or or realizing that we needed to not really have a fourth verse or a second, middle, middle eight. Yeah, whatever, yeah. Um, and, you know, that when, when the band fell into kind of miscommunication, we wound up with some pretty long albums <laughs> there uh, and some good, really good songs, but maybe too long. True. You mentioned the Sidewinder, Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight. This record, it's been remastered for the 25th anniversary edition, and there's, there's a little more presence with everything. And I started noticing things in the songs that I hadn't caught. And there was a moment in the Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight that I, I thought was fun. And the moment for me was that you're cracking up there yeah. as you're singing this song. What's an absurd lyric? <laughs> it, it made me laugh, and, and we decided to keep the laugh because it, it was a part of the song. I mean, it, was, it indicated the joy with which the song was written and sung. Not my favorite song ever. Mm -hmm. I, I would not have put it on this record personally, but, but I, I was feeling pressure to have some more upbeat songs. So well, where was that this. pressure coming from? <laughs> Everybody else. Present I mean, company I, accepted? I, 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 I <laughs> Everyone like, else. I like that song. You know, I think it's a nice counterweight to the rest of the record. I think yeah. that, I think it's a good thing that it's there. It's not one to brag about, like like you said, but but I, I think that it makes, without it, it would be a lesser album. It's catchy, I'll say that. I hear one little part of it and I sing it for five days. Yeah. Dr. And, uh, Dr. Zeus. Zeus. Seuss. <laughs> we had that argument for about two weeks yes. in Miami. Do you remember oh, how to pronounce it? He hates my pronunciation. Mike, well, is, Mike I, is a grammar like. I, I only hate it. I didn't hate it. It was just wrong. That was all. It was just. Oh, well. Okay. Well, Zeus. Zeus. I mean, Zeus was the Greek Roman god. Greek okay. God. Anyway. Well, that's how we said it. I have to talk about Everybody Hurts. When I listen to Everybody Hurts, I, I think there can't be a more universal theme to sing about than what you sing about on the, on this song. And uh, I've, I've wondered, surely you've heard from fans over the years mm -hmm. uh, about what this song must mean to yeah. them. Is yeah. there any, any story that sticks out in your mind? The number of times that people have said, you, you saved my life, or yeah. the song was there at a time when I really needed it, thank you. 
And yeah. that, you know, that's my that's my Academy Award. That's that's bigger and better than anything anyone could say to me. Is that something that we did had a positive impact on their life in a moment of great need or a moment when they needed something like that? It was there. So that makes me really happy. letters from people saying exactly that and you know I would write them back and say you know you're welcome glad we could help hope you're okay now you hope you hope so <laughs> it doesn't always work out but you know that song I mean there's so many of these songs that either very overtly or kind of quietly speak to the island of broken toys it's the people that are for whatever reason outsiders people that feel like the other people that don't fit in in one way or another and those are my people you know those songs are there for them that's Michael Stipe and Mike Mills of the band R.E.M. talking about the group's landmark album, Automatic for the People. The 25th anniversary deluxe edition of the record is out November 10th. For NPR Music and All Songs Considered, I'm Robin Hilton.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Kay Buxbaum in support of the David Gilkey and Zabiula Tamana Memorial Fund, established to strengthen NPR's commitment to training and protecting journalists in high-risk environments.